So an article I was reading uh, said this, all world religions stress the importance of gratitude or thankfulness. In Judaism, prayers of gratefulness are an essential component of worship. Orthodox Jews recite them 100 times a day. Gratitude it was um, referred to by the reformers as a basic attitude for a believer to possess. Moreover, religious tradition suggests that you should be grateful notwithstanding your current problems and circumstances. Not to deny them, but in addition to and in spite of them. To feel gratitude only when you feel good is considered narrow-minded. In the scripture, Rav Shaul teaches in everything, say everything, give thanks. The Hebrew Midrash instructs us in pleasure or pain, give thanks. And so with that in mind, and in consideration that we're entering into a month where we as Americans celebrate the Lord by giving thanks for all he has done, we're going to be speaking on thankful living for the next four weeks. That we're going to be talking about thankful living for the next four weeks. Thanksgiving is a foundational concept in the scriptures. But if we're honest, how many people do you know that abound with thankfulness? Um, I'm racking my head <laughs> uh, as I said that. There are certain things that we must address in order to live a genuinely thankful life. Uh, today, uh, I'm speaking on contentment because thankfulness and contentment go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. If you are discontent, it reveals a heart that is bereft of thanksgiving, right? If you're discontent, um, your heart is bereft of thanksgiving. And so contentment is essential to be able to live a thankful life. God is worthy of thanksgiving. Amen? Th the scripture says, enter his gates with? So we need to develop thanksgiving, and the first way to do that is to work on the principle of contentment. I think most of us would agree that our culture is consumed by materialism and covetousness, which is defined as inordinately or wrongly desirous of wealth or possessions, or being greedy. Um, this exists in every socioeconomic segment of society. As a matter of fact, many times the poorest among us um, are the most susceptible. Contrast that to a spirit of contentment, which provides a sharp contrast to the materialistic culture we live in. But where and how is such contentment found? Although the circumstances of our lives are always changing, we can trust in God's plan for our life. And he intends to bring about good, but he also intends to transform us. Say transform. In other words, the person you are today is not God's plan for your life. The person you are today, he wants to transform each and every day for the rest of your life, more and more into the image and likeness of his son. So if you're walking with the Lord for 30 years, you should really look like Yeshua pretty well. 
And if you don't, that's okay. God just, he's called the potter, right? And the potter has a wheel, and he puts us on that wheel, and he works us, and he molds us into the image of his son. And that's what God has in mind. And part of that is thankful living. Part of that is a life that's filled with contentment. In a uh, play about a king, there's a very brief but telling dialogue which ensues as a result of two men meeting the king in a country setting. The king is dressed down, we might say, and as a result of that, this brief dialogue ensues. The gentlemen say to him upon his introduction of himself, but if thou be a king, where is thy crown? To which the king replies, my crown is in my heart, not on my head. Not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen, my crown is called content. A crown, it is that seldom kings enjoy. Wow, that's profound. A crown that seldom kings enjoy, meaning contentment. But yet this king was content with his life. I want to say that it's a crown few people enjoy. Certainly, we could go out on a limb and say it's a crown few Americans enjoy, a life of contentment. Draw your attention to Philippians chapter 4, where it says this, in verse 11. Not that I am saying this to call attention to any need of mine, Rob Shittwell speaking, since as far as I am concerned, I have learned to be content regardless of circumstances. I know what it is to be in want, and I know what it is to have more than enough. In everything and in every way, I have learned the secret of being full and being hungry, of having abundance and being in need. I can do all things through him who gives me power. That's something the Shaliach had to learn. And it's something that we have to learn. And it's a worthwhile lesson to live a contented life. Because if you are content in your heart, you will abound with thanksgiving. So what we learn from both the story of the king and of that passage of scripture is three things. And the first thing is perspective. Many people look for contentment from external sources, which is why, as humans, we are susceptible to materialism, which in turn breeds covetousness. We buy into the thinking that if we obtain all the things our hearts desire, that we will come to the place where we're content. This pushes people to work harder, work longer and sacrifice precious relationships for the sake of acquiring things that are supposed to bring us happiness. If you think about all the stuff the world tells us we need, right, that we have to go out and acquire, and could you imagine for a second your life without that stuff? Perhaps how simple it would be. And how much money would you save? <laughs> Which means there would be less pressure on you. 
in many areas of life. It's interesting that in the beginning, God was in relationship with Adam and Eve, and they wanted for nothing, right? However, they were enticed to desire or to covet the one thing that they did not have. The one thing they didn't have. No, it wasn't an iPhone 11. But the one thing they didn't have, the enemy came in to deceive them, entice them into wanting it so desperately. And we know how that worked out. It ended up bringing pain and suffering into the human condition. Well, the problem with this is our perspective. And I'm going to challenge you to perhaps change your perspective on life. Our perspective is that we're looking from the outside in. We wrongly believe that if we focus on externals, the internal self will be content. But the exact opposite is true. What if we changed our perspective and looked for the answer in our inner self? The place where God resides. The place where God says he will meet all of our needs, our real needs, our need to belong, and our need to be accepted, and our need for genuine relationship with the God who created us. What if we focused on those things? What if our perspective on life was about that one singular thing above all else? Luke chapter 12 it's up here, you don't have to turn, but I know people like, you know, you love your phones and you like to flip. That's good. So Luke 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Yeshua, they said, Rabbi, tell my brother to share with me the property we inherited. But Yeshua answered him, my friend, who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? Then to the people, he said, be careful to guard against all forms of greed or covetousness. Because even if someone is rich, his life does not consist in what he owns. And he gave them this illustration. There was a man whose land was very productive. He debated with himself, what should I do? I haven't enough room for all my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And I'll store all my wheat and other goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you're a lucky man. You have a big supply of goods laid up that will last for many, many years. Well, start taking it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, this is a powerful moment. I mean, very infrequently in the, in the uh, Mishalim and the parables, does we have a reference to God himself. <laughs> but God breaks into this conversation, and God said to him, you fool, this very night you will die, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with anyone who stores up wealth for himself without, without, say without, Without being rich, rich toward God. This parable is 
about the importance of having the right perspective. That's what it's about. The external versus the internal. Or perhaps we could say the eternal. Where does contentment come from? The man in the parable thought it was from taking it easy or retiring. From eating, drinking, and enjoying yourself. Enjoying yourself meaning from external sources that could be consumed. Think of our lifestyle in America. It's all about consuming things to bring enjoyment into our life. Think of the things that come to at us through TV alone that are focused primarily on self-enjoyment. However, this parable says that this way of thinking is foolish. It says when we die, those temporal things will be of no use, of no value to us. But God said to him, and perhaps God is saying to us, God said to him, you fool, this very night you will die, and the things you prepared or the things you accumulated or the things that you are preoccupied with, whose will they be? That's how it is. That's what God said. That's how it is. For anyone, doesn't matter who you are in this room, good for me, it's good for you. Anyone who stores up wealth for himself, say without, key word, without being rich toward God. So that's an important principle that we need to learn. We need to have the right perspective. Secondly, the next thing that steals our contentment is preoccupation. And I mean this, we are preoccupied with the wrong things. God wants us preoccupied with himself. His great love that he showered upon us through his son, Yeshua, and the fact that his spirit, the spirit of God, that hovered over the waters in creation, lives in us and is our helper in life. He wants us preoccupied on that. The only way to true contentment is by being preoccupied by God, not on things. Amen? So, and certainly not on worrying, right? Because when we're preoccupied, how many of us ever worry? A little bit. Or maybe a lot. Well, look at what someone said about worry is fear's extravagance. It extracts interest on trouble before it comes due. Think of that. It constantly drains the energy God gives to us to face daily problems and to fulfill our many responsibilities. It is therefore a sinful waste to worry. A woman who had lived long enough to have learned some important truths about life remarked this. I've had a lot of trouble, most of which never happened. Selah. 
most of which never happened. She had worried about many things that had never occurred. You ever do that? You ever do that worry and you can worry for weeks and months about something only to find out that it was nothing all along? Think of the waste of energy, of time, of mental stress that you caused yourself, of soreness, of every day walking around with that knot in your stomach because of worry. That never happened. That turned out to be totally and absolutely false. And she had come to see the total futility of her anxieties. Matityahu chapter 6. The Shiliach says this. Therefore I tell you don't worry about your life. Right? Now you just told me. You admitted to me that you worry. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> That's okay because I worry too. But God's growing us. Amen? He said therefore I tell you don't worry about your Don't. How do they use don't? You know like those compound. Do not worry. And therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Sorry, ladies. Look at the birds flying about. They neither plant nor harvest, nor do they gather food into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his or her life? And why be anxious about clothing? Think about the fields of wild irises and how they grow. They neither work nor spin thread. Wow. But not even Shlomo in all his glory was clothed as beautifully as one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass in the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, thrown into an oven, won't he much more clothe you? What little trust you have. So don't be anxious asking what will we eat and what will we drink or how will we be clothed. For your heavenly Father knows, or it says, for the pagans who set their hearts on all those things are consumed, but your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough service already. And someone can say, Amen. That's what the scripture has to tell us. A worry is just another way of saying we are preoccupied with certain things. We're preoccupied with our health. We're preoccupied with our finances. We're preoccupied about our relationships. We're preoccupied. And that's another way of saying worry. And God is telling us, don't be preoccupied with those things. Be preoccupied with the kingdom of God. And all the things that you need and all the worries you have will be taken care of. That's a novel idea, right? But it's the truth. It's what the scripture says. Well, listen, that, that, after I read that, I was compelled to consult my friend, Mr. Google. 
and to find out what do people worry about the most. So I found the top 20 things that people worry about. Now, maybe it's not you. Maybe you don't worry about any of these. But this is what Mr. Google told me that people worry about. People worry about crime happening to them. They worry about that. People worry about their pet's health. Okay? They worry if they have a good sense of style. Whether they're styling and profiling. They worry if they're doing good enough at work. They worry if they're good parents. They worry about their relationships. They worry if they will find or have found the right partner. They, want, they worry about whether their spouse loves them or not. They worry about being attractive. They worry about being happy. They worry about their job. They worry about paying the bills. They worry about their physique. They worry about how they look. They worry about debt and about their diet and about their health and about getting old. Guys, there's lots of things to worry about, apparently. <laughs> and maybe those don't hit the place where you worry, but where do you worry? What are you worried about? In the parable, Yeshua said, do not worry or be preoccupied with the wrong things. Instead, be preoccupied and focused on God and his kingdom. I want to tell you something that I have been coming to the conclusion of more and more. In our modern state of faith, we are so uh, preoccupied or so consumed with people getting into the kingdom of God that people make a profession of faith and they have obtained salvation and they come into the building. But then they stop. Because they think the whole goal was just getting into the building. But God tells us many places in the word of God that that is not the end goal. The end goal, if you read Ephesians, is to grow into maturity, into the likeness of his son. And what I'm telling you is that it's not just about getting in the front door of the building of God, but it's about now exploring this vast mansion of rooms that are in that building that bring us from one degree of glory to another. In other words, we grow in our faith. We grow continually from infancy to maturity. Like I said at the beginning of the message, if you're walking with God for 30 years, friend, you should be something else for the kingdom. Okay, you shouldn't be, you know, learning basic things. No one should be having to tell you to pray or to read the word or to share your faith. Friends, that stuff is infancy. Why does that take place, though? Why do we see that? Because people... The emphasis of the Besorah in the West has been get into the building and then stop. And so you could have people 30 and 40 and 50 year old 
in God and immature. Because they've ceased, they've been now preoccupied once they're in with all this other stuff and not be preoccupied with God and his kingdom. And so they cease exploring and cease growing and cease going to the next level of glory. Cease getting closer to God. And so everything's a struggle. Friend, as a believer, we were made, designed to grow. Just like, wouldn't you think it's strange if you saw a little baby Mira? Isn't she cute? She's this big. And if we say, how old is she? She's 45. She's 45 years old. You would say, it's freaky. It's freaky, right? What do you think happens spiritually? Maybe it's just as freaky. That we're many, many, many years old in God, and we can't even go to the Word of God and get some spiritual sustenance out of it for ourselves. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to get a hold of God. We don't know how to cry out to God and get an answer from God. Friend, that's a problem. That's a little freaky. How old are you? You're 50 years in God? And you don't know how to access God? It's not wrong. I'm just saying. But how does that happen, Rabbi? It happens when we're preoccupied with the wrong things. I'm going to just share this with you. Close your eyes and listen to this. This is pretty powerful. You could read it. Don't you have to close your eyes. Keep your eyes open. This is from Dr. Stanley Jones. He said this, I am inwardly fashioned for faith, not for fear. Fear is not my native land. Faith is. I am so made that worry and anxiety are sand in the machinery of life. Faith is the oil. I live better by faith and confidence than by fear, doubt, and anxiety. In anxiety and worry, my being is gasping for breath. These are not my native air. But in faith and confidence, I breathe freely. These are my native air. A John Hopkins University doctor says, we do not know why it is that warriors die sooner than non-warriors. But it is a fact. But I, who am simple of mind, think I know. We are inwardly constructed in nerve and tissue, brain cell and soul for faith and not for fear. God made us that way. To live by worry is to live against reality. Yet for so many people, if not, I dare say, most people, our lives are consumed with worry, preoccupied with the wrong things. But that could change, right? It could change now. Right now, it could change by you being preoccupied on the right things. Amen? So lastly, let me give you the last one. 
lastly, to live in contentment, because we're talking about thankful living. You're never going to be living a thankful life if you are discontent. Never. And listen, have you ever had this testimony? You're in the worship service, and you're thinking about your job. or the job you want, or something else, because you're preoccupied with work. To live in contentment means to live in peace. Say peace. Shalom. Colossians 3 says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. This verse gives us insight in how we are to do this. Because I can hear people saying, (laughs) right now I can hear it, it's easy to say live in peace, but if you were facing the things I'm facing, Rabbi, you would know it's impossible. Well, to you I say that the pathway to that peace is by letting the word of Messiah dwell in you richly. Hear that. The word of Messiah. Not the word of the doctor. Not the word of the banker. Not the word of government. Not the word of your insurance company. Or health coverage. It says, let the word of Messiah dwell in you richly. Richly. And to this I challenge you, you answer the question, because you know you. I'm working on knowing me. How much of the word of God is in you? In the situations that come into your life, what comes out of you? The word of God? Principles of God or worry and fear and doubt and unbelief and earthly things? What comes out of you? How much of the word is in you? How much of Messiah's word is dwelling in your being? That's a good question that only you can answer and only you could remedy if you were to say, hmm, not enough. How else? By teaching and admonishing. That's what's happening now. I'm teaching you about this and admonishing you in this. Or by strongly encouraging each other in, in how? In Psalms. You ever say to someone, say, listen, listen to the, you ever share a verse of scripture with someone? Hey, hey, brother, sister, what about that? I want to encourage you with this. With Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs Singing with grace in your hearts to God. What, 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 what? I could have peace by singing to God. Why do we sing to God? One, he's worthy, right? We know that, right? One, he's the joy of our life. But what happens when we sing to God is God pours his peace on our life. I don't know if you were, if you were in tune or not, but there was a time in our worship where, I don't know about you, I just felt a total 100% peace of God. Just by singing to God. I didn't do anything. 
He didn't do anything. What did he do so special? He just sang a song to God. I think it was on that song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Holy, Holy, Holy are you, Lord. Holy, Holy, Holy. And God, like, smiled on him. And the peace of God descended upon them. I could feel it. I could sense it in my heart. He could say, well, Rabbi, you know, you had too much pizza last night. Well, you may think so, but I'm walking with the Lord quite a while now, and I can assure you it wasn't the pizza. That it was God's presence. It was God's peace that surpasses. I don't understand it. You ever been in one of the, I've been in this many times where I'm in a very bad situation that causes me a little sorus. And then, uh, you know, you, you go to God, and, and it's not there. Like, all of a sudden, you feel good. Even though the situation doesn't change, you feel like that service isn't there anymore. And it's almost like your natural man says, wait a second, it has to be there. It was there a second ago. Where, where is it? But God gives a peace that transcends. You shouldn't be at peace. But God gives you a peace. And often just by singing a song to God, some of you folks need to rethink your theology a little bit when you say, well, I don't like to sing. I'm not a singer. That's okay. God has a big set of ears, you know what I'm saying? And God can take whatever key you're in. Okay? What other rhythm you're tapping to? And God kind of like just syncs it up. And he hears it as beautiful worship unto him. You know, so if you're worried, well, I don't sing good, that's okay. God hears it as beautiful music. Well, I have no rhythm, Rabbi. It doesn't matter. God hears it as being perfectly in time just by singing to God. Uh, that was a long commercial, but <laughs> uh, sorry. We'll get back to it. So, I mean, that scripture verse is valuable, friends. I mean, that's a short piece of scripture. And there is richness in that verse about the things we can do to bring God's peace. Um, the personal journal, which was evidently a thing back in the day, <laughs> the personal journal reported this incredible statistic. Listen to this. Since the beginning of recorded history, of recorded history, not history, recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. In its study, the periodical discovered that of 3,530 years of recorded history, only 286 years saw peace. Moreover, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties were made and broken. So what does that tell you? Hmm. That can humankind on their own come to a place of peace? Evidently not. Evidently not. Peace cannot be obtained through natural nor earthly measures. If you want peace, then you need God. Hear me. Everyone get serious with me for a second. If you want peace, you need God. God doesn't need us to have peace. We need God to have peace. And we need to get that right. Um, God lives in peace. 
Matter of fact, one of his names is the Prince of Peace. You and I need God. It's not like a suggestion. God's not something you just add to your life and he makes it better. We need God to save us from destruction without God. What? Yeah. We need God. We need, you and I, need to repent from our ways and accept God. That's it's all on us. What I'm saying, it's on us. We need to do these things. God's doing okay. You and I need God. You and I need to believe. You and I need to follow. God doesn't follow us. We follow God. Amen? We need, and we sang it today, and we sing it every week, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength. That's what we need to do. It almost sounds kind of what Yeshua was saying in Matthew. Don't be worried about this stuff, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Well, you and I need God. I would say this, if you're in this room and you have not given your life to God, if you have not accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, as your Savior and King, friend, here's the truth. That's not something you could take or leave. We need him desperately to save you. So that means two things have to happen. You have to repent of sin and turn to God and follow him like your life depended on him. Because your life does depend on him. And so does mine. That's just the truth. So, I already gave you some ways to obtain the peace of God, and here are a few more. Back to Philippians 4, and I close with this. Remember for Philippians 4 at the beginning? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Messiah Yeshua. Meditate on these things. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, whew, meditate on those things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw from me, these do. Do them. Meditate and do them. Gives us two things to do. A little homework. Meditate on these things. And I know all of us in this room do nothing but meditate on those things, right? Those are the only things we meditate on, and those are the only things we do, right? Okay. Maybe not. <laughs> but the promise is, okay, and the God of peace will be with you when we do that. And it doesn't mean that there's an absence of chaos in your life. It doesn't mean that circumstances immediately change. It means that the God of peace is with us when we do those things in our life circumstances. 
And that's a good thing. So here's what we glean from these verses. If you want peace, then pray. And offer up thanksgiving to God. That's what it says. Tell God your requests and leave them at his feet. And then meditate on the truth. See, so many times, you know what worry is, when we, just to go back, hit the reverse button there for a second. It's all about meditating on things that are not true. Not to say that they're not true in the present day or in the present scenario, but they're not true as far as ultimate reality goes. God ultimately is truth. And then meditate on truth, on noble things, on God's justice, on pure things, lovely things, good reports, not bad reports. We've got a bad report from the doctor, and you're going to stare at it every day and meditate on it, and you go on the Internet. And you know how, how helpful the Internet is, right? When you're sick, you know, isn't it helpful? When you're sick and you go to the Internet, then you think you'd like to, you have one foot in the grave after you go to the Internet. You think, I'm dying. I must have it. I must have that incurable thing. That's what you think because you start meditating on the wrong things. It says on good reports, on virtuous things, on things that are praiseworthy. We're told to meditate, to think, to dwell, to ponder on these things and then do them. Do them. You know, we want to... And need to. Walk in thankful living, then we need to be content. And if we're going to be content, if we have any shot at being content, then we have to do these things. We have to do these things. We have to do these three things. So, in conclusion, the scripture says that we should enter his gates with thanksgiving. And if we're going to be successful in that endeavor, we must learn to be content in God alone. God, you know, I, I've had this conversation with many people over the many years. And to make a long story short, this is the bottom line with them. They are not content with God alone. They could be content if they had God plus something else. It could be money, it could be a, a person, it could be any number of things. I, oh, Rabbi, I, I would be content if I had God plus. But the scripture says this, he is the pearl of great price. That's who it's talking about in that parable. It's, and it says, go sell everything you have and buy that field because he is the treasure to life. And if you have him, the other stuff is superfluous. You don't need those things. Yeah, yeah, you have to eat, and all, all, but those are not the focus of your life. That's just the truth. It just is. We need to be thankful for all God is, and we certainly have all we need through our relationship with Yeshua. Therefore, let us abound with contentment and thanksgiving in God. That's my message for you today because I know this, that God wants us to be a people that are content. That's a beautiful place to be. That means that when the world tells you you need to work harder and longer and 
You need to sacrifice your family at the altar of a paycheck. Or you need the next size TV or the next vehicle that comes your way. Or you need X amount of, you know, uh, dollars in your bank account. That's not true. What you need is him. That's what you need. And if you have him, you have everything. So on that note, on that note, we can all be thankful, can't we? Because we do have him. We do have that relationship with him. So let's stand to our feet. And we're going to just bow our hearts. Listen, if you were listening to that and God spoke to your heart anything about your life, about something maybe you need to do, something you need to change, to, to, to focus on and not to be preoccupied in the wrong things, just take a second and acknowledge that before God. You know, just, Jim, you can put something. Just acknowledge that before God, and we're going to pray in a second. But I want to give you an opportunity to respond. When God is speaking to us, it's good to respond to God. You know what I'm saying? Even in your times where you're reading the Word, you know, that's God speaking to you through the Word. I don't know if you just read it and leave, or do you read it and respond? We need to respond to God. God begs and desires and even demands a response from us. We need to respond to him. So take a second and respond in your heart and say, God, whatever you need to say, um, because this is an important foundation for thankful living, is to live a life of contentment. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Our Father, our King, we thank you, God. Father, I thank you, Lord, for... Father, I thank you for each one in this room. Father, your people, Lord, your precious sons and daughters. God, the people of your pasture. Jim, kill that. Jim, kill that. That was the wrong thing. You know what I'm saying? That's good. That's good. Father, I pray for every, Lord, you know everyone's heart in this room. You know every situation. Lord, you know what's burdening them, what preoccupies their mind, God, what sorrows they are living with. And Father, I lift them before you, God, and I ask for your abundant grace, your great mercy, Lord, your goodness and your power to fall upon them, God, that you would help them. Lord, that you would free them from the burden, God, of being preoccupied with the wrong things, the things that bring them down, the things that cause them pain. Father, that they would begin to see that there is a better way. That as we focus on you and your righteousness and your kingdom and the good things that you have for us, God, that those other things will no longer grip our lives, and hold our hearts captive. So, Father, I lift up your people before you, and I ask for grace and peace to be upon them. In Yeshua's mighty name, amen. Let me bless you, as then we're going to go upstairs. There's an oneg, so there's birthday cake <laughs> and bagels and fellowship. Uh, so let's just pray. Stretch out your hand. Yurer Adonai Panavilakavirunecha, 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Abba, I pray that the shalom of heaven would rest upon your people, God, that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all they ask or imagine in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Blessings to you. Uh, and please enjoy a little bit, a little bite to eat upstairs with us, a cup of coffee, a piece of cake, and Shabbat.